Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, Beth Dunn has the story about Wellfleet changing directions on their plans to dredge Wellfleet Harbor, and I've got a story about a new dolphin rescue emergency room coming to Orleans. Will David is here with your exclusive WOMR weekend weather outlook. And Ira Wood has a matter of opinion about tomato anxiety disorder. The town of Wellfleet has dropped a plan to dredge part of Wellfleet Harbor this year after townspeople couldn't agree on the terms of the project to offset the dredging by restoring a section of Blackfish Creek. Following lengthy discussion at its meeting on Tuesday night, the select board voted not to go forward with the plan. The board's decision came one day before bids for the dredging project were set to expire. Citing too many unanswered questions and unknown costs associated with the plan, board members John Wolfe, Ryan Curley, and Barbara Carboni voted against approving the mitigation plan that had been submitted. Kathleen Bacon abstained. Michael DeVasto recused himself. The select board had approved the plan on July 18th, pending clarification of a few items. Town Administrator Rich Waldo will notify the two contractors who bid on the project— withdraw the mitigation plan from consideration with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and notify grant funders of the town's decision. Board members and the public were able to ask questions of KP Law attorney Carolyn Murray during the two-and-a-half-hour meeting. She gave her opinions on several legal issues that were raised during negotiations with the Army Corps of Engineers, including three petition articles being brought to the special town meeting in September. No one spoke out against dredging 23.8 acres in Wellfleet Harbor's south mooring field. There was a consensus that dredging was needed, but most speakers did not support a plan to offset potential damage by restoring 28 acres of Blackfish Creek. The shellfish department would have been responsible for the culching, seeding, and monitoring of the Blackfish Creek section. The mitigation plan called for using a combination of town land, land from Mass Audubon, some private landowners, and the state. Mass Audubon and private landowners had not yet signed an agreement with the town. There were questions, too, about how to get state approval for use of their land. Some saw the mitigation plan as being too open-ended and subject solely to review and determination by the Army Corps of Engineers. If Blackfish Creek's restoration wasn't as successful as required, people wondered what other areas the federal agency might ask to be restored. A group of mitigation plan opponents said they planned to file an injunction had the board voted in favor of the mitigation plan Tuesday night. It's estimated that the costs to dredge might increase by an estimated $440,000 if the town delays dredging until next year. 
Former Provincetown police detective Meredith Lober began her new job as assistant harbormaster in Wellfleet on July 13th, four days before being placed on a list of untrustworthy law enforcement officers for alleged misconduct in her investigation into the Lady in the Dunes murder. According to town administrator Rich Waldo, he hired Lober on June 20th, one month before she was placed on the Cape and Islands District Attorney's Brady List. He said she now serves as a part-time seasonal assistant harbormaster during the summers on an as-needed basis. The Brady List is maintained by district attorneys because prosecutors are required to disclose any exculpatory evidence to defendants, including when a law enforcement official has a record of lying in an official capacity. District Attorney Rob Galibois sent Provincetown Police Chief Jim Golden a letter on July 17th, explaining that Lober had been placed on the list for conduct regarding Lober's 2013 exhumation of the Lady in the Dunes victim, Ruth Terry. A letter to Lober from Galibois, dated April 3rd of this year, alleged that Lober had exhumed Terry's body in Provincetown St. Peter's Cemetery without lawful authority to do so. An account of the exhumation appeared in a 2014 book by Deborah Halber, Skeleton Crew, How Amateur Sleuths Are Solving America's Coldest Cases. According to Halber, Lober told her at the time that she was doing it on the QT. According to her lawyer, Lober voluntarily retired from the Provincetown Police Department on July 2nd. Wellfleet Town Administrator Waldo said Lober's duties as assistant harbormaster will mostly be logistical. According to Massachusetts general laws, harbormasters and assistant harbormasters also enforce state maritime rules and regulations and local boating bylaws alongside local, state, and environmental police. However, Wellfleet Harbormaster Will Sullivan told The Independent that the seasonal assistant harbormaster position is not law enforcement. Both Waldo and Sullivan said that Lober will not need certification for her new position. Lober told the Independent that there was nothing improper about her investigation. The large building with tall, fluted ionic columns at 401 Main Street, Route 28, in West Dennis has been a home, a hotel, a boarding house, and a nightclub since it was built by Captain Obed Baker in 1861. Unoccupied since the 1980s, the columns as it is known, fell into disrepair and has had several owners, each with their own ideas for reviving it. The property is now coming back to life with new white siding and deep blue shutters framing the original tall windows. The new owners are leading a major transformation of the iconic building into a total of 16 owner-occupied and low-income rental units in the main structure and associated duplex townhouses. Tim McElroy is a partner in the project with Lindsay and Mike Weiss. The group bought the property for just under $1 million in April of 2022. McElroy, a native Cape Codder who lives in Sandwich, was a master plumber before he got into the real estate business with the Weisses, who are seasonal residents of Sandwich. When the company took over the property last year, the owners got permits for a new roof, siding, and windows to make the building weathertight. They also have approval for a new septic system that will be installed at the front of the building this fall. The previous owners bought the property for $415,000 in 2019. 
Despite getting the backing of the Dennis Historical Commission, that group's request for $300,000 from the Community Preservation Committee was denied at a special town meeting in November 2021 by a vote of 270 to 160. The company then abandoned the project. The new company's plan shows five one- and two-bedroom units in the two floors of the main building. Two units will be restricted for low-income renters. The townhouses will be in six buildings, with 11 units spaced around the main building on three sides. Two of those will be restricted for low-income renters as well. The owners plan to start building the townhouses next summer and will sell the main building condos while the townhouses are under construction. In other real estate news, a local landmark is on the market in Provincetown. The Provincetown Inn sits on more than six acres of prime waterfront land overlooking Provincetown Harbor at one commercial street. The property has over 82,000 square feet of buildings with 102 guest rooms, two restaurants, a pool, private beach, and six function and banquet rooms. John Salusi of Premier Commercial has been hired to market and sell the property. The company has not listed a price, but says it will accept bids after prospective buyers tour the property over the next couple of months. The property is appraised at $13.9 million. In its release, Premier Commercial said the property could continue as a hospitality operation or be redeveloped to include residential, mixed-use development, or workforce housing. This is the first time in 46 years that the property has been on the market. Established in 1925, the inn originally had 28 guest rooms and a formal dining room. Chester Peck bought the inn in 1935. In the 1950s, the inn began to take on its present look as additional rooms and an Olympic-sized pool were added. After nearly 40 years of running the inn, Peck sold the property in 1972. Brooke Evans purchased the hotel in 1977, and Evan Evans purchased the inn from his parents in 1999. Today, Evan, Lois Evans, and general manager Derek Evans run the day-to-day operations. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. An unusual operation has moved into a storefront next to the Kid and Caboodle Children's Boutique on Route 6A in Orleans. Behind a white wall hung with images of stranded dolphins receiving care from human rescuers, saltwater percolates through twin 4,500-gallon pools, each 15 feet in diameter. The International Fund for Animal Welfare, known as IFAW, is opening a rescue center for dolphins and other small cetaceans. Cape Cod is recognized as a global hotspot for dolphin strandings, and the facility will fill a critical need for space to provide intensive care for the dolphins and porpoises that strand on Cape Cod's shores. Brian Sharp, director of IFAW's Marine Mammal Rescue and Research Team based in Yarmouthport, said it's been a long time coming considering that the nonprofit has been dedicated to cetacean stranding responses on Cape Cod for nearly 25 years. A ceremonial public opening of the center will take place in October. While visitors won't be able to go into the treatment area, 
They will be able to visit the public outreach center at the front of the facility where they can learn about IFAW's efforts in the field and any patients being treated there. There will be a live feed of the treatment pools on a closed-circuit television screen so people can watch activity when there are animals present. According to Sharp, over the last 10 years, 25% of live cetaceans that strand in the U.S. stranded between Barnstable and Wellfleet. Cape Cod's geography and the Bay's extreme tides are the main reason strandings happen so often here. Sharp advises anyone who comes across a stranded dolphin to stay back about 150 feet for their safety, as well as the animal's safety, and call the IFAW hotline at 508-743-9548. Faced with significant turnover of teachers, administrators, bus drivers, and support staff, Outer Cape schools are feeling the effects of Cape Cod's housing crisis. Jerry Goyette, superintendent of Provincetown International Baccalaureate Schools, said when talking with promising applicants, one of the first things they ask is, do you have housing? Nauset Regional School District Superintendent Brooke Clenchy said if candidates don't already have housing, it's really a hard sell to bring in new staff. With the first day of school right around the corner, the Nauset School District still has a number of vacancies for the year ahead. At Truro Central School, Superintendent Stephanie Costigan said many teachers have been forced to find housing up Cape, with some coming from as far away as Sandwich. Nauset Regional Middle School teacher Sean Kerouac said the school recently hired a couple of teachers who quickly realized they couldn't afford to live anywhere nearby. They left. The challenge of hiring and retaining employees is even harder when it comes to non-teaching staff. Chris Easley, chair of the Nauset Regional School Committee, said that while Nauset filled all of the 74 positions that turned over before last school year, it's had a lot more difficulty getting applications for administrative positions and hiring staff like custodians, cafeteria workers, and bus drivers who make less than teachers and administrators, is particularly difficult. The Cape Cod Collaborative, which provides busing for the Nauset and Truro schools, pays bus drivers around $30 per hour. Julie Packard, one of Cape Cod Collaborative's drivers for Truro Central, said that because her position is part-time, her annual pay comes to around $25,000. According to information created from the Wellfleet Affordable Housing Trust, the annual income required to buy a median-priced home in Wellfleet is $123,000, which comes to around $60 per hour for an individual full-time employee. Cape Cod Collaborative Executive Director Paul Hilton said that at any given time, the organization could hire up to 20 more drivers if there were enough applicants. Active community members have helped the schools get by. Provincetown Schools has a network of people who tell the district when they hear of housing available to rent during the school year. Some homeowners especially want to help teachers, and those placements have allowed Provincetown to build a nearly full teaching staff. More systemic solutions, such as reserving units of affordable housing for educators or offering subsidies to help teachers buy homes, are difficult to implement. 
the future promises more challenges, Easley said. As older employees continue to retire, a true staffing crisis is on the horizon. Meanwhile, the Outer Cape had another banner year for rooms tax receipts, with revenue up 42% over last year in East Ham, 46% in Wellfleet, and 47% in Truro. Those numbers come on top of large gains in the three prior years as well. The tax now brings in five times what it did in Truro and more than ten times what it did in Wellfleet in 2019. The gains come from the statewide expansion of the room's occupancy tax to apply to short-term rentals, such as those booked through Airbnb and VRBO. That change took effect in 2019. Voters in Truro, Wellfleet, and East Ham elected to raise their local option rooms tax rates, effective in 21. The story in Provincetown is a little different. The town has a much larger base of hotels, so it was already collecting significant revenue in rooms taxes before the expansion to short-term rentals in 2019. The town also had already adopted the highest possible local option tax rate of 6% in 2010, so Provincetown didn't have the same opportunity as the other three Outer Cape towns to increase its revenue by raising its tax rate. Even still, the town's rooms tax revenue more than doubled in three years. That growth came to a halt this year, however. The town's rooms tax receipts actually declined slightly in the most recent fiscal year. The town has lost a few hotels, with some properties becoming workforce housing, while others became condos. Wellfleet Porchfest is set to return to the lawns, porches, and makeshift stages of historic Wellfleet on Saturday, August 26th. Weather forecast is a bit dodgy, but as we go to press, plans are to go ahead with the event. As people stroll the streets of Wellfleet, you can hear everything from jazz to Celtic to old-time Americana, fiddle and banjo music. This year's event boasts 49 acts at 26 venues across downtown Wellfleet, broken down into two sets, with each act playing for 90 minutes. The festival gathers its talents primarily through applications, though some performers are invited to return to the festival in order to ensure a diverse range of music. This year's performers are a good mix of new and returning talents like duo Billy and Beth, They'll be playing on Main Street outside the Wellfleet Historical Society during Set 1, performing a range of tunes from Celtic to Bluegrass. This year's Porchfest marks Billy and Beth's fifth gracing the stage in Wellfleet. Other Main Street performers like Eleanor and Dario are still relatively new to Porchfest, and they are preparing for their second appearance at the event. Eleanor Dubinsky said they'll play a mix of original music, classic French songs, bossa nova, and Latin American music. Wellfleet Porch Fest takes place from 1.30 to 5 tomorrow, Saturday, August 26th, all over downtown Wellfleet. The event is free, and you can find the full schedule of performances at wellfleetporchfest.org. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. 
This is meteorologist Will David with your weekly weather watch and temperature trend for the Outer Cape. Another Friday, another front, another deep trough over the eastern Great Lakes. The trough and front will slowly move eastward through Saturday. Now ahead of the front, gusty south winds will bring increasing humidity along with showers and thunderstorms. Some of the thunderstorms could produce heavy rainfall and localized flooding. The front should be off the coast by Sunday as high pressure slowly brings increasing sunshine. Definitely my pick of the weekend. Fair and pleasant weather will linger into the early part of the work week, but another trough will send another front through the region around midweek with more showers and thunderstorms. But now the good news as we head closer to Labor Day weekend. We've seen so many fronts cross the Outer Cape on a Friday or Saturday this summer, but the pattern may allow for at least a very nice start to the holiday. But don't get your hopes up for the entire four-day stretch because another front may impact the area either Sunday or Labor Day Monday. By the way, there always seems to be some sort of tropical trouble around Labor Day weekend. And this year is no exception as the Atlantic Basin has become very active. I'm sure you've heard a lot about Franklin, but there's something else that hasn't even formed yet that I'm keeping an extremely close eye on for next week. More in the tropics shortly. Elsewhere across the nation, you would think that the tropics and having four named storms in less than a week would be the big story. But the big story continues to be the record-shattering heat across half the country from the Canadian border to the Gulf of Mexico. Heat indices approached 135 degrees over Kansas this week, the highest readings of the 21st century so far. While yesterday, Chicago's heat index reached 120 degrees, setting an all-time record for the highest heat index temperature ever recorded in the Windy City. A cold front will bring sweet relief to the upper Midwest this weekend and maybe briefly to the southern states early next week. But the core of that dangerous heat will shift southwestward and westward and bring the heat back to the southwestern U.S. and the Rockies. Meanwhile, the ever-present trough over the Great Lakes and Northeast will continue to shield New England and the Mid-Atlantic from nature's furnace. And finally, Tropical Storm Franklin will become a hurricane this weekend in the Atlantic. Most of our computer models agree that Franklin will spare the East Coast. However, swells and dangerous rip currents are likely across most of the eastern seaboard next week as Franklin makes its closest approach. Meanwhile, a system that hasn't even formed yet with origins near Honduras will move northward and a tropical depression or storm could form in the Gulf of Mexico this weekend. Now, if this happens, the same trough that will deflect Franklin away from the East Coast next week could actually bring this potential new tropical system up a portion of the East Coast sometime next week. If the storm gets a name, it would be Idalia. And as I've said many times over the years, the tropics can turn on a dime. So stay tuned. Now my exclusive WOMR weekend weather forecast for the Outer Cape. This afternoon, breezy with showers and scattered thunderstorms. Highs around 72. Tonight, breezy with showers and thunderstorms along with areas of fog. Near steady temperatures around 68. Saturday, breezy and humid with showers and thunderstorms likely through midday 
and heavy rainfall is possible, especially during the morning. But look for some partial clearing during the afternoon and early evening. Highs around 76. Sunday, partly sunny and continued humid. Highs around 73. As always, stay safe and informed by keeping an eye to the sky and an ear to the radio. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. I'm Weather Will. It's time to admit it. I have all the symptoms. The catastrophic thoughts, the ritualized behaviors, the complete loss of hope. It's time to finally come clean. I have TAD, Tomato Anxiety Disorder. For many years, in fact for decades, every year except this year, it was easy enough to justify the crazy rituals because come August, we always got a lot of plump ripe tomatoes, ordering seeds just after New Year's, starting them in March while the ground was still frozen, watching the electric bill soar as we heated the greenhouse during a polar vortex, covering the ground with black plastic to warm up the soil. One year, I believe it was 2015, we even tore down the fence in order to get the snowblower into the garden in April, and we still got more than enough tomatoes to can them and dry them and turn them into sauce, to eat with fresh mozzarella and basil for lunch and give bags away to friends. But this year, it's the end of August, and I'm looking out the window at a hundred green tomatoes, and all of them are hard as bocce balls. It's not as if the garden was a total failure, and my wife keeps reminding me we got loads of wonderful salad greens, far more cucumbers than we could eat, a fair amount of garlic, a decent harvest of shallots, zucchini and yellow squash, of course, and many pounds of pole beans. But tomatoes are the prize, are they not? What's a Greek salad without a thick slice of beefsteak tomato? What's a tomato tart without the alternating color wheels of black crims and yellow brandywines and Caspian pinks? And you can't make a BLT out of string beans. It's not like it was ever easy. Every year had its headaches. For the past few years, it was a drought that required enough irrigating to burn out our water pump. But to have our pantry shelves filled with sauce to eat all winter long, a small price to pay. And then there were the critter wars. But after discovering that rabbits are repulsed by a foul-smelling concoction called plant skid, and chipmunks hate vines that are sprayed with a mixture of Frank's hot sauce and Dawn dishwashing detergent, we made our peace. They got some, we got some, which usually meant my picking fruit that had just begun to turn faintly red before they took their ruinous one bite out of each. But this year, 
Nothing seems to work. Even when I pick a tomato with a faint pink blush, I have only to turn it over in my hand to find a fat, lazy hornworm jolted upright as if rudely awakened from a nap, or gray mold, or blossom end rot, late blight, anthracnose, fusarium. It feels like COVID all over again, but now it's in the garden. Most people I know are crazy doing other things in the summer, so I don't have a lot of serious garden friends with whom to compare notes. But those I do ask say their tomatoes suck. And when I asked my local expert at the garden store, she said, well, nobody's got any good tomatoes this year. Exactly why is anyone's guess. Some cite the lack of pollinators, and I can certainly get down with that. Others say that tomatoes need really hot temperatures to ripen, and this morning we actually turned on the gas stove to warm up the living room. And then there was all that rain we've been having. Now, I thought water was good for tomatoes, but it turns out that too much rain causes root rot that stops plant growth altogether. Whatever it is, I'm at the end of my rope. I check them every morning. I spray them every night. I imagine empty shelves, lasagna made with supermarket ragu, farm stand tomatoes at outrageous prices. Clearly, I need professional help. What else can you do when you have tomato anxiety disorder? I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn, Will David, and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. And now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz. It's Lush Life with Scott Penn, here on listener-supported Outermost Community Radio, WOMR. Young man, I'm a